There was a click and then a light so blinding that Sarah lost her balance. She was in a squalid bathroom with a broken toilet bowl in the corner behind a rotting wooden partition. A long trough ran the length of the far wall at floor level. Everything was filthy. But next to Sarah, a rusting tap spat brown water into a low, long basin. She grabbed the edge of the sink and thrust her mouth under the tap, opening it up to full. The liquid tasted warm and rusty, but it was wet and it didn't stop. Sarah gulped and swallowed, gulped and swallowed, ignoring the sense of smothering when it went up to her nose. After a minute, she stopped and stretched out her back, letting the water drip down her chin, feeling the life seeping back into her body. That was an excerpt from a World War II thriller coming out in March called Orphan Monster Spy, about a young Jewish girl in Germany in the 1930s who goes undercover in a boarding school to spy on the daughters of Nazi officers. Her mission is to steal the plans for a bomb from the father of one of her schoolmates. The book has been called Gripping, Deeply Disturbing, and Chillingly Good. It's also been called Unforgettable and likely to put Matt Killeen, its British author, on track to becoming a new favorite for readers around the world. But Matt's own journey to writing this story has been quite the adventure. I've been working on this uh, book for, well, an absurdly long time. Mo- you know, most first books take a long time, and most first books don't get published, so I'm very fortunate. But it's been about five, it was five years from start to finish. I had just started um, as a, a writer for a toy company. I'm sure you'll ask me about that later. Yeah. <laughs> and I kind of had a story in my mind. I just completed a, like a very short, like a novella for children, which was based on a film script that I once wrote. And it was it was fairly bad, uh, but I, I'd kind of finished it. And I, and I kind of knew that that wasn't the one, but it was like great practice. And I wanted to sort of push on and try try something else. And I had this idea. And I got myself on a, um, a master's program for cr- uh, creative writing for children. And that, that was the making of me in many ways because it, it got, me, got me reading again and got me, thinking, got me thinking about the sort of the craft behind the writing. Because I'd been writing like as an advertising copywriter and, you know, largely ignored journalist for like, you know, about eight years. And um, it got me more thinking about the craft of writing and particularly writing for children is you have to be concise you there's no fat on a children's book you can't get away with waffling you have to like get them to you have to get people to the point and you have to in a very short number of words you have to get across the emotions and the information without like overloading them it's uh there's a great deal of craft to it it's a very dark topic that you write about in the book i mean you've said it in world war ii you're dealing with nazis from what i understand Mm -hmm. and and all of that and how then do you translate that for a young audience, that kind of darkness? There are a number of things when you're dealing with, when you're writing for, like when you're writing YA. Yes, so when you're talking about young adults' books as, as a kind of a, it's a marketing grouping more than anything else. Um, it's a way books are sold. It's not really a genre by itself. And so, you, I mean, you're dealing with, you are speaking to some adults. You are also speaking to some older teenagers who one hopes the school system has, has sort of delivered a, a general idea of what this topic is. But if you're looking at the younger people, I think it's important. The age of the protagonist is very is very important when it's when you're dealing with uh, children's books, because that kind of sets the tone for who 
can possibly interact with with them um and i think if you have if you are a 13 year old you're reading about 15 year old and you are seeing those events through the filter of a 15 year old that makes them more more real yeah and more accessible and i think you have to you have to make a story light it up in some way and you have to make it that little bit exciting if people are going to be able to sort of take on the inner truth of it right I think the, the protagonist is very important, the person that the uh, reader can identify with. And if that person is written with enough authenticity that people can see themselves in it, then you can actually put that character through a great deal of darkness and hard times and you can see the world through their through their filter. Where then did you get the idea for the story? Why was this what you wanted to do? I grew up in the UK in the 1970s, and the war was very big business at that point. It was all the comics, all the books, all the the films and TV series, all the stuff that we would hope was going to come on that Saturday night. And it, it, it was very tied up in the national identity. But for me, I grew up in those conditions, and my mother's best friend was German. And so we spent many summers with their family and many summers in in Germany with these wonderful, caring, compassionate people who were also rabidly pacifist. You know, I couldn't couldn't even pretend that something was a gun or a sword. I couldn't play anything that had any kind of violent edge to it. And it was very hard to square those people who I knew with the kind of the way that Germans were portrayed on in comics and stories and books, which is very sort of uh, morally superficial. So I kind of had had that experience in my life and as i got older and learned more about the holocaust that dichotomy just just grew more perplexing and strange and i could not get my head around it and i think that that kind of gave me a a sort of horrified fascination about the second world war that um has never gone away just as i was thinking story ideas i was um used to go past uh the in Stockwell in South London, I used to pass that about every week. And there, there's a mural painted on this traffic island. Um, and it's part war memorial, part sort of celebration of famous people from the local area. And there's a, a, a memorial to Violet Zaba, who was, she was a, an agent for the special operations executive who was dropped in into occupied France twice to help with sabotage and sort of undermining the German occupation. And, uh, you know, that in, its, that in itself was often on the very edges of morality. But I was I was looking and I was calculating dates and I worked out that she was 21 when she volunteered. And I was thinking the kind of mess my head was in at 21. And would I have been capable of that? And no. And actually, I wasn't much more mature at 21 than I had been at 18 or 17 or 16 or 15. And And as I was having this thought process, Sarah was born the idea of how young could you be and be a useful asset in the war and then how would somebody that young become an asset totally relevant as well in in the current climate then around the world for sure well it's it's only got more timely which is it's very unfortunate somebody on twitter the other night said oh this is just says so much about modern you know, modern America. And I was like, yeah, unfortunately, (laughs) you know, exactly. Very. Yeah. It's, it's, I, I was talking my concerns about sort of the, 
the growth of the Third Reich and the rise in fascism, I was thinking how easily we were slipping in that direction. But some people might have laughed at me if I'd said, well, you know, we are, you know, there are there are Nazis there. They just don't feel they're allowed to speak. Right. And meanwhile, we have government governments, you know, behaving like the Third Reich, you know, um, yes. because, oh, well, our country is in danger. Therefore, we're going to start to limit self, uh, civil liberties because like you, you would you don't have anything to fear if you're not up to anything. And of course, that's this is how police states are created. And exactly. it has only got more horrific since since then, to be honest. Do you feel then that, uh, you know, writing a book such as this, which is also a very complex and adult uh, topic, had to come to you at a time in your life where you're no longer the 20 year old, you know, you're no longer the 30 year old, that you've also kind of grown and been through so much yourself? My brother, who is also an author, says that writing novels isn't a young person's game. When you're 16, you can write uh, a hit single that will last forever, that will be recognized by everybody all over the world. You are probably unlikely to be able to write a novel that has any weight or meaning at that age. I mean, subsequent thinking that, there are people who, there are authors I have come across who are writing some incredible stuff at, at absurdly young ages, which would probably probably say that 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 adage would be a lie. But I think it is definitely easier with a with a some light with life experience to be able to construct stories that are multi-layered. I think personally, for me, this book is the apotheosis of all the other creative endeavors that I've done. I don't think I've wasted my life on any of those, but I think that all of it kind of came together in this in this book. Brilliant. And that's Hopefully. exactly, yeah, no, I, I wanted to go back and look at that because you were saying all of these things that you have done, could you talk us through some of them and, and how you kept going? Meaning how did you not ever give up and go, oh, this is ridiculous. I don't know what I want to do. My My experience when I was like nine and 10, in the city where I grew up, there were schools that you could go to if you passed an exam and you did well enough, you could go there. And it was kind of sold to me that that was, that was my big chance in life. And if I could pass these exams, I could, you know, get to the school and then, then the rest of my life would unfold in a way that would be, be advantageous. And like most things like that in life, that's not actually how it, how it worked. Like most people who are a little bit different, I was very socially awkward and, and that school was very difficult. It had a very fixed idea about what constituted success. You know, it was you go, you get through, you pass your exams, you go to Oxford and Cambridge and you get, you know, added to that large number of people right. who go to Oxford and Cambridge. And um, I struggled very hard with that, but I didn't really know what, what I was doing and I... I hit around, oh, I'm trying to think, 13, 14, and I just, I kind of discovered music. I'd had a very, hadn't really listened to any popular music up to that point, and then I think I heard Queen's Bohemian Rhapsody. Right. And I was like, oh, you know, this, this is what I, this, this is, this is incredible. This is an amazing thing. I have to have this. I have to listen to this all the time. And, um, you know, when you do that, then you run into some other musicians and then you have a band and you have a group of people and you all want the same things. And that was a kind of big moment for me of like figuring out my life. And I was an artist, but I struggled with it. 
I didn't really I didn't really know what it was that I was trying to do. I left school at 18 and instead of going to university, I had a band at that point that 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 was very slick and I turned into a professional. Now back then, being a professional musician uh, certainly in the UK involved being unemployed, but it meant that you spent all your all your days writing music and rehearsing and then you would play one gig and make some money and then you would use that money to travel down to London so that you could play in front of one person and a dog, um, <laughs> yeah. you know, hoping that that guy from the record company was going to show up for five minutes to watch you. But kind of by the end of that, like two years that I'd been doing that, and we got very close to being signed and then it didn't come off. It was just very exhausting, you know, to be that focused on that dream yeah, and it not to happen. So that, that band split up and I'd, I'd had a place to do art and film at this university. And I kind of beginning to fall in love with that because I'd uh, been taking, um, you could, by that point, give you an idea of the era you could rent a video camera from the tv rent shop and uh you know and so i started filming other other bands and then i started like editing that together and and that kind of love of the visuals and putting that together it was kind of felt like a seamless transition i had something of a panic uh, a kind of existent, existential panic because most of the people i knew who had gone on and tried to be filmmakers were living in squats and were didn't have enough to eat and i think that kind of was unsettling the the other thing that happened is you know i met a girl and we got married and she was a bit older and so we had a child and there is very few can't remember who said this but it's like the enemy of creativity is the is the pram in the hall right. you know when you need to provide rent and food it is very hard to go, right, well, actually, I'm going off to London this weekend and I'm going to be sleeping on someone's floor while we shoot a, you know, a three-minute promo for a band that no one's ever going to hear. And that's the kind of thing you need, you need to be doing, really. Right. And so I started working for this laser tag center. You know, you run around with laser Oh, yes. Guns. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I did some event work for them and they were like a very always on the verge of going out of business but there I found computers and I started doing design work and then I started designing their flyers and that's how I sort of got back and I became I basically became a graphic designer I stayed there an absurdly long amount of time running this laser tag center and running around with the laser gun and then doing design work and then running the nightclub at night and I don't remember getting a lot of sleep during that period and then I got divorced and I had an opportunity to actually kind of figure out what I was going to do with the rest of my life. And then I was thinking, well, actually, what I would like to do is advertising. And then I was kind of conscious that I wasn't necessarily I was a good designer. And if you wanted an unpopular relative photoshopped out of your family photos, I, I was your man. But I wasn't the best designer in the world. And um, I broke up with my my uh, partner at the time who was the copywriter she quit and then I ran this 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 guy who was very talented and he was just just he was he was it was one of those those moments in in your life when because you you kind of if you are a creative person there's an idea that oh well I should I could do that I can do that I can do that and it was kind of the realization watching him designing that I was good but I was 
never going to be great. I was not a great designer because I, I did something and he looked at it and he moved one object like half an inch to the right and it just transformed the picture. And I, that was the kind of like a Damascene moment where I went like, oh my God, you know. And fortunately, he was Swedish. So I said, well, okay, you'd be the designer because you're clearly better. I'll do the writing. And that was, again, second uh, moment on the road to Damascus where all of a sudden I was writing and I was going, this is brilliant. This is this is this is great. This this because it wasn't that it was easy, but just that it came easily to me, right? As a result of everything I'd done, yeah. And then I thought, this 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 is it. This is what I should be doing. And then I got very very sick, very very quickly over the course ah. of about six months, from being perfectly well to being in hospital for like eight weeks. And that that kind of ended that the professional team that I was in. I think coming back and trying to hustle, there was a big period of, of, of recovery and trying to hustle at that point and yeah. taking my work around to people and trying to find you know, new people to work with. And I did, I did more and more the work that I was getting. I was getting the freelance writing gigs because I'd worked. I'd, I'd actually had a proper job. And I could write and I could string a sentence together and write a paragraph. And it is actually surprising how few people can actually do that. Everybody thinks they can write because they can put words on paper. Right. And uh, it, it's, it's never as easy as that. So I was getting quite a lot of freelance work and doing that kind of thing. But I kind of came to a realization because if you if you take, you know, you, you have what's called your book, which is your your ads, your spec ads that you've created. And I was on my umpteenth iteration of this. And I was taking it around and showing to people. And I was, I'd long since learned that you can't take every single piece of advice off everybody because yeah. people will say it's so subjective. People will be giving you conflicting advice. And I kind of got to the point where somebody looked at my book and he didn't like it. And I was like, oh, you know what? I know these ads are good. And like, I no longer care what anybody thinks. So I kind of, at that moment, it was like a weight off my shoulders. And almost immediately I got like, three job offers oh wow like okay. overnight because it was just something it must have been something about the way I was acting it's like I no longer cared right and right. I saw an ad on this this one temp agency site and it was like Lego looking for writers and I went oh that's exciting and how awesome would it be that to work for a company where I didn't have to come you know when I worked in advertising I would go right well this beer why what's the because advertising is not about lying. Advertising is about getting to whatever the central truth is and, and teasing that out and showing people. Right. So I would have to go, well, it's not enough for me to say this beer is good. I want to know how is it good? What makes it different? What's that special magic? And with Lego, I never had to do that because everything they make is pretty good. <laughs> <laughs> it's Lego. You're like, you know, yeah. Getting that job. And I thought it was just going to be a copywriting job like for their catalogs and stuff. And you know, I sat down and they went, right, okay, so we're gonna, you're going to write this comic. We're going to give you an hour. And I went, oh, is this the kind of thing I'm likely to be doing? And they said yes. And I went, oh, great. And ah. it was kind of the, the, maybe a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. And I sort of took it with both hands. Yeah. Yeah, that, and that was great. And that was, a, that was a, a fairly significant moment in my life because it kind of gave me – it had covered all the insecurities about – contributing and looking after my family and you know putting putting some food on the table and at the same time there was this huge creative element and it also was the 
like a kind of final acceptance that this morass of stuff in my brain was actually valuable and i think that gave me and it was around then i was thinking like i would quite like to write you know or write again you know and that's that's kind of how it all kind of how it all kicked off did you feel that it was necessary to go back to school uh to get that mfa uh was that something that you felt was necessary you know considering you were already working in lego why didn't you just kind of go right? Well, I'm just going to pick up my laptop and get started on something. Because I was I was doing that. I was writing on the laptop on the interminable train journey home and stuff. I need deadlines. You know, I need people going. I need this. I need to see this by next week. Otherwise, stuff just doesn't happen. And the fact was, I had that, and it was saying, right, we're going to be discussing this book at Tuesday at 8 p.m. Okay. So you better have read it and you need to have written like 400 words of this writing exercise. You need to have that done. And that that was invaluable. And then everything else, I think I hadn't even understood just how valuable that MA was going to be. You know, I'm glad that I kind of went with the instinct to, well, give me some lines, get me thinking about writing outside of outside of Lego. Well, it seemed it. It seems to be that's what you've done a lot of. I mean, hearing you retell the story of how you got to where you are right now, there's been a lot of adapting and you've allowed yourself to explore and you you seem to have dealt with anything that might have defeated other people or disappointments that might have kept someone down really well because you seem to just move around it or find a way to move on from there. I, I think there's always a tension when you are when you are a creative between the, the raw ideas and the raw kind of uh, creation and the craft that is required to make that work. You know, there were moments where I went, actually, this is terrible because you've wanted to be a graphic designer all this time and you thought it would be wonderful and now you're doing it and you're miserable. What's the matter with you? But I think when one is, when one is sad, it is normally because there is something, something amiss that needs fixing. And I kind of recognized that doing this and doing, basically doing this was not enough creatively Right. It, it it wasn't answering whatever whatever demon it is inside me that demands feeding. It right. was not feeding that demon. And I also to recognize that if you are in that state of mind, you aren't necessarily going to be doing the best job for people. And I started to feel bad because I was thinking, okay, so your business cards are perfect and everything lines up, but like that brochure you just created was, you know, pedestrian pedestrian at so I think it's it is important to recognize those moments. Though when when I was running the laser tag center, there was that time when I was already getting divorced and there was already no the the same pressure to deliver and to stay in that job was diminishing. And I was thinking, you need to leave. And I think when you when you do that, that is it is you know it's difficult to go right. I'm leaving and I'm going to jump. I'm going to jump out the plane and pull the ripcord and see where I land. And that's scary. And I think that's an important thing you need to do. You need to know when to leave that plane. But did you ever, did you have to do it when uh, you you knew what the safety net might be? Or did you trust enough to kind of just go, oh, well, you know, screw this. I just, I need to get out. There's been a mixture, there's been a mixture of that kind of thing. There are times when I would go, right, well, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to do something else. Uh, and I knew what that thing was. There was times when I left and I I, I did not know what, what it was. I was going to next it's kind of it's kind of a mixture of both and they the thing is even then like time time passed and i was 
coming up now, I had I, the book was coming out and I had a sequel that I needed to deliver. And I just I realized that with, you know, I have a, a as well as I as well as the 19 year old child, I have the two year old child. And then I realized it, it wasn't going to happen unless something gave. And so I had to let Lego go. As it happens, they were they were fine, <laughs> fine with it and did not cry at all. Uh, because that was just the moment we were able, I was able to recognize that was the moment to go. It was time. And, you know, I have a book coming out and I have a deal for that and I have a deal for a sequel, but it's still scary. People know by this book, I might never get another deal again. And so you, you, at some point you have to do the scary stuff. Right. And that's the, and that's also the motivation. I've got a book, a second book to deliver. If I don't deliver it, they're not going to pay me. So but they, there was a, there was an auction for your book as well, wasn't there? For the publishing rights. Yes. Well, I have a very good agent. <laughs> I think that the book was very, I think it's it, almost by by luck, it was very timely. You know, Nazis were in the news. And I have, a, I have a very good agent. And then there were lots of people who were very enthusiastic about it. I mean, equally, there were, there were a lot of uh, publishers who were like, nah, not going near this. But I say it is very, it is extremely gratifying if you have been working on something that long for people to go, ah, I love this. I have to be part of it. I have to stake my professional, you know, reputation on being associated with it. Yeah. And that's quite, that's, that is quite special. Having to choose whom, who you want to be the guardian of your book moving forward and for the rest of your life is is a very strange experience because I think most the book was entirely my own creation and that was absolutely me on my own doing it. Most creative endeavors are in some way there's a collaborative element. And at this point, this book had been created almost entirely by myself. I'd had some very good advice. I'd had some amazing support. I'd had a few good ideas. From from other people from from the from the the MA cohort and from the Society of Children's Writers and Book Illustrators, but right. pretty much I'd done that by myself. And then I, you you take this thing and then you have to you hand it over to another to an editor who is then going to kind of uh, make changes. And although that in itself that is also very collaboratorial, right. it is very very difficult because when you've when you've been working on something that long and sunk so much of yourself into it it is it is tough has the way you looked at your life changed then now that you have hit this age and you've 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 become the author that you in the beginning didn't think you were you know what is strange about it is that I mean, with being an author you can sell your first book at 60 and you can be the biggest author in the world. You know, most musicians, if you're not certainly back when I was a musician, if you weren't signed by 2021, that was it. You're, you know, you could, you could forget it. Um, and so there's been this constant and, and, you know, part of this is that, that exam, where's the exam I can take to do this to, to, Where's the the brick wall I have to bang my head against in order to do this? You know, I, I uh, and so doing that, um, 
my whole life has been kind of like ah, clock is ticking clock is ticking got to get this got to do this cannot spend any more time here cannot you know i'm wasting my life i'm wasting my life and or like you know or i am wasting the talent and so i have been kind of racing the clock for like 25 years 20 30 yeah. years yeah it seems and i think that I'm at that point where I can go, okay, I'm at a, you know, if I'm, I'm, I may not be at the summit of the mountain because there's always something else in the same way, arriving at that school at 11 and discovering there was a whole bunch of other stuff I had to do too. Um, you know, I have this book to sell, I have a sequel to write, I'm, you know, fun as they are, they're all extra challenges that require extra, you know, work. Um, yeah. Yeah. and, you know, to, to become a best-selling author then is the new, you know, the new thing. Um, I do feel at least that I'm on like, a, you know, the Hillary step on Everest, you know, I'm on a flat bit, I'm on a flat bit and I can look back and go, look what you did. So I do feel I'm at that point where I can kind of enjoy it a bit, you know, enjoy the, the, the success. I mean, I think also being, you know, being ill and disabled for a good five years, I think it was in all, I feel like I've got my life back, like I'm having like a second lease of life. What would, what would your words be now for, you know, for our listeners, let's say, who are in that area where they're maybe feeling a little bit lost or haven't found what their thing is yet and are at the point of maybe giving up and thinking, oh, well, maybe I should just find something that will, you know, pay my bills as opposed to following what their heart might be pushing them to do. Bring into your working life some passion and joy. You have to, it is impossible to say, uh, okay, this is my work and this is my life. This idea of work-life balance and I'll balance the two. It doesn't matter if I hate work. That doesn't, doesn't work. You need to have a, a synergy between, between the two. And um, I think there is always a way if, if, you know, if finances are an issue, there is always a way to make enough and follow, you know, in, in some way follow your dream. I would hesitate to say, right, leave your job immediately and go and let's follow this dream of without any kind of structure to it. Like most things, there is hard work to be done and to lay down that, the, the, the groundwork, um, particularly if there's anything creative. But if you separate out your work life with your uh, uh, completely from your life and your passions and your creativity, there's a, you're killing a little bit of yourself. This stuff feeds your soul in such a positive way that it, it, is the, it is the balance for the misery of not being able to do it. I always say it's like following a football team. You know, if, if you don't watch the rubbish 3-0 drubbing to a team you should have beaten on a wet Tuesday night and then there's no trains home. If you haven't done that, then when you win a trophy, you don't, you, you, you don't get to enjoy it. Maybe you are working in Starbucks during the day and that's paying the bills, but that is enabling you to do something yeah. else that feeds, yeah. feeds your soul. You know, um, having said, having said all that, always ask yourself, is this really what you want to do? You know, if you are pursuing a dream you had three years that began three years ago 
and now you're you're kind of still fighting and it's making you miserable and question you are allowed to change your mind you are totally entitled to go you know what that isn't what i want anymore and you can totally say i am not going to do this anymore and i haven't failed i haven't failed at doing this i have learned all these things i have all these skills it has fed this bit of my soul or my creativity and maybe i'm not going to be able to do this the rest of my life because actually bit getting there is making me a bit miserable maybe the industry is in a slump and there aren't that many jobs you you need to be able you need to allow yourself to reconfigure to to look at the information and go well you know what there's this bit that i like best maybe i can do this somewhere else and that should be a constant process you know yeah Gosh, that's brilliant, Matt. Do you do you feel this is it for you then? Are you on the train that you want to be on for uh, the foreseeable future? No, I do. I, I'm I'm only being cautious because have ev- with everything I have said, it sounds unlikely <laughs> that this is it. But um, right now, books are what I want to write. And while people are going to buy them and yeah. enjoy them, then that's that's definitely what I'm going to do. Yeah. I mean, I in within this there are things like I'm writing this story about this this girl, and I'm going to write a sequel, and maybe there's a series in there if people want to read yeah, it. But, for but sure. do I want to write? Do I want to write any more than two of this story? You know, and, and that those are the kind of questions that I'm, I'm I have. Yeah, and as you said, right, it's like everything you've been through, all the ups and downs, and all the variety of different jobs has led you to this point and contributed to the kind of writer you are. Yeah, and I think I think that's a good. It's a analogous with life generally. Is you know you have to be careful with because actually those are all the things that have made you the person you are and you know you you pull on those threads with great care regrets that you have in your life things that you might have done differently those are these are all the experiences that have made you the person you are now and if you like yourself even a little bit you pull on those tapestry threads with great care thank you very much i for one can't wait to read the book yeah thank you and from what I've seen online as well, there's a few, several hundred people who can't wait either. So I think you're on your way. I'm very, very pleased for you. Very scary. Very scary. <laughs> <laughs> it's fantastic, Matt. It is just fantastic. I can't, I can't wish you any more luck than I already do. You know what I mean? You, you deserve all, the, all of this, and I'm, I'm really, really glad it's coming to you now. Cool. Thank you. Matt's life has certainly not been dull. He's off on a book tour soon and working on a sequel. Who knows, we may even get to see Orphan Monster Spy on screen someday. Now if there's anything I hope you take away from this conversation, it's to never give up. Because your dream come true could be right around the corner. I'm Marga Ortigas. Thanks for joining us on About That.